The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to the Energy Fellows Podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansberry, your host. And before we introduce today's guest, Welcome to today's guest. I want to, uh, again, welcome each of you to this show. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to OGGN. Please go to the survey and the show notes. Uh, fill that out. You'll uh, be provided uh, stickers. It only takes about 10 seconds or less to fill out, and we'll send you some stickers for your hard hats, laptops, whatever you want to use them for. Also, if you will, rate and review our show. Please go to the show notes for that as well. We'd love to hear from you. Again, I want to thank those that have supported the documentary. Sherwood Forest Top Secret. If you haven't seen it, go to pbs.org. And we received a Heartland Emmy nomination for that and really appreciate all the support we've had from those in the industry and those that are interested in such a subject as World War II and the importance of the energy business during World War II as well. Also, we have a column, or I have a column that comes out. It's in the 10th year in a woman magazine. I hope you'll look at the upcoming column. Also, the book, America Needs America's Energy and Its Natural Resources can be uh, found at Amazon as well as Barnes & Noble. Well, today, it's always a pleasure to introduce a friend of mine, really a wonderful expert to talk to when it comes to energy in so many different areas, so knowledgeable. Jose Becerra, welcome to the Energy Fellows. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be on the program again, and I always enjoy uh, talking with you and discussing these exciting energy topics. Oh, it's unbelievable times and a great time to be in the energy industry. And those that are not in the energy industry, I guess you really are a part of the energy industry because everyone uses energy. Nothing moves without energy. And of course, we see that now with all the heat waves going (laughs) across the U.S. My goodness, temperatures and all that are causing issues with the grid or grids across the U.S., California and Texas and so forth. We'll talk about that. First of all, if you will, Tell about what you're up to these days, uh, what you'd like to share about what you're doing. We've, we have past episodes where we've introduced you as far as a bio and those kind of things, but you always have something on the move. I want to give you some time to tell us what you have in front of you there and what you're working on or what you'd like to share, and then we'll get even involved more in what's going on in our industry. Absolutely, Mark. Well, certainly no rest for the weary here. I mean, we, we just continue to march down the road and try to continue to impact the energy industry in a positive way by, you know, working with the private sector. And, you know, in my current capacity as director of site selection and incentive advisory at Kroll, you know, we have a very large energy practice and I'm based out of the Austin, Texas office for Kroll. And we manage a number of major Fortune 500 clients and helping them locate new uh, projects, new facilities. We work on everything from traditional energy projects from thermal power plants, natural gas, nuclear, even some coal. We work on pipeline projects. Uh, We work on refineries and petrochemical plants as well. We also work on a number of renewable energy and low carbon related projects. 
So really, we are working all across the energy spectrum. And we're, we're seeing, especially in the Texas and southern markets, including Oklahoma, Louisiana, is an interest from the energy sector in deploying new types of facilities and deploying capital for energy transition projects. Everything from what's being called as you know, e-fuels, green hydrogen, ammonia, methanol facilities, also carbon capture utilization and storage projects are very active, looking at site locations all across the country, really, and trying to uh, harness CO2 from large industrial corridors and channeling that CO2 into something useful for industry, whether it's being used in refining, petrochem, or even just sequestered underground. So there's just a number of those types of projects that we're actively working. And and I think one thing that's really clear, Mark, I know we've talked about this on previous programs, is what's really critical for the future of the energy industry is the ability to transition the energy workforce. And that continues to be a key requirement on the site selection projects that we're working to really understand the makeup of the local regional energy workforce. Is there oil and gas skills available to hire into these new projects and facilities and kind of harness those skills for energy transition projects and jobs? And so that really is a key criteria. So that's, I think, a big reason why you're seeing traditional oil and gas states and regions like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, seeing a fair share of these energy transition projects. So it's been very active, no shortage of activity, that's for sure. You know, a big driver of that is what is happening, I guess, at the federal level with some new programs and incentives. So we're certainly taking a look at that and trying to leverage that as much as possible. But overall, you know, this energy sector just continues to evolve and Mm -hmm. continues to generate new investment opportunities and new jobs. And I feel very confident and proud to say that United States, especially Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, we still are the energy capital of the world. And I think we will continue to be. No question about it, Jose. You know, in development, it takes, you mentioned workforce development and years of planning. I mean, just to develop what you're talking about on locations is not just overnight. I mean, it's years of planning and it takes years to develop. With that said, are we really meeting the challenge on talent, finding the right talent? Because, I mean, it's so competitive. Of course, those in the oil and gas industry specifically have been demonized in a sense to a certain degree. And so what happens there, you know, is that distracting, trying to get the talent when oil and gas tied to energy in a sense as well? Is that putting a damper on trying to find the right folks for such a great opportunity and development? Yeah, you know, I think on the engineering side of the house for most oil and gas and energy companies, I think they're continues to be a steady supply of engineers, whether they are drilling engineers, civil, mechanical, electrical. A lot of these engineers have already worked in oil and gas and are able to transition quickly into a a new energy transition or even a renewable energy type setting. But one thing to your point, Mark, one thing that we do need to certainly intensify is our ability as a country and all the way down the state level to produce more digital technology talent. And that includes, you know, and there's been a lot of press around AI lately, and certainly the industry has garnered a lot of attention. There's many major companies that are taking a leadership role in AI, but the use cases for AI just continue to grow. And oil and gas has 
been tracking the development of AI technologies for decades. Mm-hmm. Even back when I worked at the University of Texas, you know, we were starting up machine learning programs and robotics and AI programs and oil and gas companies were heavily invested in the development of these technologies to understand the applications of AI and oil and gas. And so we need to continue to bolster these programs from an academic perspective and, and increase the recruitment of students into these programs and graduate more qualified engineers with these types of skills, because certainly oil and gas and energy need as many digital tech workers as they can possibly find. And we've talked about this on previous shows, you know, digital technology skills are needed across all industries today, including automotive, including manufacturing, including transportation, aviation, etc., even in government capacities, Department of Defense, Department of Energy. And so there's extreme competition for digital talent. So energy industry needs to continue to be proactive in funding the train on the training side, the workforce development side with universities, with community colleges, with technical training schools, and vocational programs to increase the enrollment of digital technology students in this type of curriculum. Even all the way down to the high school level, quite frankly, I think we really need to start very early in teaching digital tech skills uh, to our workforce. And so, yeah, that's one area that is certainly a challenge and will increasingly become more of a challenge. And it's something the energy industry needs to continue to prioritize going forward. Do you feel like the messages from the energy industry are really being accepted or at least a dialogue? Or what are you seeing when it comes to maintaining a workforce and really going beyond just talent retention as well. Yeah, I think the message is being heard clearly. And I think we're kind of at a point in the evolution of the energy sector where I think everyone realizes how critical energy is and how critical it is to utilize your skills to support the energy sector in various roles. And so I think the industry has done a better job recently of retaining their talent and recruiting new talent into their companies and operations. You know, Texas is a great example. You know, the power grid continues to struggle. We're a very fast growing state. We're around 30 million people now. We're expected to be at 50 million people by the year 2050, if not sooner. Definitely one of the fastest growing states. And our infrastructure just has not kept up with the growth, quite frankly, in our urban centers, our large metro areas are really struggling to keep up from an infrastructure standpoint, including from a water resources, energy, food, transportation, schools. So infrastructure is critical. And I think everyone is realizing just how critical infrastructure is, especially energy infrastructure. And this summer, we've had a number of very close calls with the grid in Texas very, very close. Our grid operator, ERCOT, has had to issue several public notices and calls to conserve energy because we were very close to not having enough resource adequacy to maintain the grid. And so we had to curb demand in various ways. You know, and I think that is a wake-up call, whether you're in the energy sector or not. Energy affects everybody and everyone's jobs and every industry. And if you can't keep the lights on, you can't go to work, you can't get your job done. So, I think everyone is paying a lot of attention now to what's happening in the energy sector and realizing that as, you know, these high growth areas like Texas and the southwest U.S., quite frankly, including Oklahoma, Louisiana, continue to grow rapidly. We're going to have to continue to increase the capabilities of our infrastructure and make it more resilient, quite frankly. And so all that translates into, you know, hiring the best people, deploying capital and making sure you have regulatory environments that 
support the maintenance and the build out of new infrastructure to support our future economy. So that is, I think, a very clear message that has been put out there by the energy sector and certainly is shaping the narrative and politics, both at the state and federal levels. And I think we've seen a number of new programs at the state and federal level that are looking to help the energy sector achieve these very aggressive goals on infrastructure and resiliency. So yeah, a lot of work still needs to be done, but I do think we're heading in the right direction. Well said and well covered as well. Uh, You know, I'm very interested in knowing, especially in Texas where you're located, what are the top three or so, maybe more or less, really areas that you see students or those that are entering the workforce or wanting to transfer into the energy industry? What areas do you see are the most interesting right now as far as uh, gaining interest, as far as that goes, where people are going? Yeah, I still think engineers certainly are in high demand by the energy sector. So you're seeing a lot of individuals you know, pursuing degrees in mechanical, civil engineering, electrical engineering. Are you seeing most of those? I guess my question is beyond just the uh, title of engineer or you know, whatever it might be. Are you seeing as far as the sector itself? You know, Is it hydrogen, oil and gas, yeah. wind? So what are the really top areas you see are really in demand? Right. Yeah. I think you know, there are a number of areas within the energy sector that are, seem to rise to the top. You, you know, you can go on Indeed or any other job boards and look at job postings and you're seeing a lot of solar industry jobs that the solar industry is looking to hire. Wind, you see some wind energy jobs, a lot of battery energy storage jobs as well. There are companies that are really building up their e-fuels workforce and companies are hiring for hydrogen you know, operators for hydrogen facilities, the methanol, the ammonia facilities, you know, hydrogen electrolyzers, companies that are building hydrogen electrolyzers. They're doing a lot of hiring right now as well. There's a lot of project management roles in, in the renewables industry that are being offered, whether it's commercial or utility scale solar especially in the Texas market. You're seeing a lot of utility-scale solar jobs available right now. And so those areas within the energy sector continue to hire aggressively. At more traditional energy companies like the energy majors, you're finding those companies are hiring a lot of digital tech workers, but also hiring a lot of folks who specialize in innovation and also working with startups and early-stage companies. You know, And so you'll find that like ExxonMobil and their new low carbon solutions business, you know, they're really looking to engage with early stage startups and identifying new promising technologies. Same thing with Chevron, Chevron New Energies, Shell, Oxy, low carbon solutions. All these companies are really trying to get ahead of the new innovations emerging in low carbon solutions. And that includes carbon capture, these e-fuel areas, renewables, batteries, you know, even traditional energy companies are hiring aggressively for these types of roles. Yeah, so those are the primary areas. I think also the automotive sector is increasingly tied to the energy sector because of the transition towards electric vehicles. And so automotive, the automotive industry is hiring individuals who specialize in power electronics and energy and utilities and electrical engineering. And so I think also you're finding a lot of Individuals who are interested in working for the energy sector are looking at the automotive industry as an opportunity to work within the energy sector. So, yeah, you're seeing it across the board. Similarly, you know, you talk about the automotive sector, you know, the semiconductor industry has been growing quite rapidly, large part due to some federal programs 
that were launched about a year ago, one in particular called the CHIPS Act, which provides some incentives for the semiconductor industry to increase chip manufacturing capacity. But a lot of the new semiconductor chips that are being built today in the United States are going directly to the automotive sector because whether you know the vehicle is 100% electric or if it's a hybrid or plug-in hybrid, every car on the road today has thousands and thousands of chips and microcontrollers embedded inside of it to control all the autonomous features and connected mobility features inside the car for safety and for self-driving modes and navigation Mm -hmm. modes. And so the semiconductor industry is also directly tied to automotive, and these chips have to be very energy efficient. So the semiconductor industry is also, by default, becoming increasingly a bigger part of the energy sector. And so, yeah, so I think there are energy jobs across the board in a variety of different categories, you know, within the energy sector that are available to individuals looking to play a role in energy. Well, I remember when we first met uh, over 10 years ago, Jose, I can't believe it. Yeah. You were a leader already in a big way in looking at the future of energy and looking at cities like Austin where you could play a part the smart grid and so forth, you're looking at it from a smart point of view. And it was very successful at that. In fact, Austin, because of your efforts, has increased greatly when it comes to energy transition. And you've been a leader on that. Can you tell about how communities can get involved as well as individuals that are not part of the energy industry, but would like to play a part in energy? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, again, going back to some of the power grid issues that we've seen across Texas and other states, you know, cities can play a role in increasing and making more infrastructure available to its citizens for residential, commercial, small businesses, even big employers. I think cities can do some aggressive planning efforts around improving the reliability of municipal infrastructure, whether it be electric infrastructure or water or wastewater or, you know, natural gas or other utilities. And so I think cities play a major role because increasingly more and more of our population in the United States are choosing to live in cities because that's really where the jobs are these days. There's a statistic here in Texas, at least, you know, as we're going from 30 million people up to 50 million people by the year 2050, And we're expecting to see well over 95% of our state's population living in a urban environment in a large metro area. Whereas today, we're, I think, in the high 80s, 80%. So we're going to see even more of a population living in cities going forward. So that really puts a lot of burden and pressure on cities to, again, be proactive on improving infrastructure and reliability as populations will continue to increase in cities. But not only that, I think cities also have the obligation of making infrastructure more equitable. This is something that I know the Department of Energy, the federal government are certainly looking to incentivize is how do you take, you know, low income or economically disadvantaged areas within large metro areas and make sure that they have the infrastructure they need, whether it be for power infrastructure, making sure there's air conditioning within homes as we go through these heat waves, but also to make sure that you manage flooding risks which is something that is very common, like, for example, along the Texas Gulf Coast, there are neighborhoods in Houston that are very low income, economically disadvantaged, that see catastrophic flooding. And very often these neighborhoods take the longest to recover after a major natural disaster or hurricane event. And so I think cities have the obligation to really improve infrastructure across the board 
for all of its citizens and also making sure that it's more equitable for all of its citizens. Well, you uh, mentioned in the past, or we discussed that is, the challenge with ESG. And it seems to be, I just need an update, I guess, to say what's going on with ESG. I get different vibes depending on who I talk to. But you've got uh, some ground floor experience on that. You hear from a lot of folks. What are you hearing? Yeah, clearly ESG is still a top priority for companies. You know, I think companies are still looking at their ESG strategies really from a PR public relations standpoint to make sure that they are being good corporate citizens. And I also think there's a lot of, especially on the manufacturing side, you know, companies that are engaged in large scale manufacturing, their ESG strategies are largely focused on making sure they have green supply chains, making sure that where they source raw materials or components those partners, those supply chain partners are as green as possible. And then there's a lot of emphasis on emissions and carbon offsets and you know, scope one, two, and three emissions. How do you account for that? And there's been some controversy as of late on what type of carbon offsets are legitimate or where are you sourcing your carbon credits? There's been some controversy recently on what types of carbon credits companies are purchasing and qualifying and citing in their annual reports as they try to offset carbon emissions and footprints. So I think what you're going to see is you're probably going to see a little bit more regulatory efforts to improve the market for ESG and carbon credits and carbon offsets. I think that's kind of long overdue in my opinion. But I think all that from a corporate standpoint is really, you know, still very strong from a public relations standpoint. But I also feel that companies are still taking ESG seriously from a workforce recruitment and retention perspective. I feel that the workforce employees are still looking to work for companies that take ESG seriously and they want to work for companies that are good corporate citizens. So I think it really does make a difference from HR perspective to have strong ESG goals for employees. And I think also consumers. You you look at the consumer side, and I still, still read reports and see data that would indicate that consumers are also concerned about the types of products they use and how that product is made and where it's made and are those factories or supply chain partners upholding human rights and not contaminating the environment when they're producing the final products or inputs to those final products. And so I think consumers are taking a very active role in having influence on corporate ESG strategies as well. So I would say overall, ESG is still very much a priority in industry. I would say that the reasons companies are doing ESG programs and tracking ESG metrics, I I would say that they've shifted slightly. It's not just purely from a PR standpoint, but also really from a bottom line standpoint as well uh, in terms of recruiting workforce and also uh, selling products. I would say, Mark, that it's still very much a priority. Definitely is. When it comes to Kroll, how do people research and know more about your company? Well, you just go to our website, uh, Kroll dot com k-r-o-l-l dot com we're a global advisory firm we specialize in tax and valuation services i work within the site selection group at kroll and so we have a number of different service offerings and service lines that are quite large globally we also have a big cybersecurity and risk management service m&a we do transfer pricing and, and valuation services and other things like that so yeah if any of our Audience members are interested in learning more. They can, they're always welcome to reach out to me directly. You can find my profile on our site selection page on the Crawl website. 
Well, cybersecurity, I'm glad you brought that up. By the way, we've covered quite a few subjects today, as we always do. But there's, of course, other subjects that we could bring up. But one is cybersecurity. I'm glad you said that because there's so much interest and concern among those I speak to, especially in the oil and gas industry. Many of these companies, as you know, Jose, they started as uh, mom and pop operations and some stayed that way and others emerged and developed. And, and yet many do not have the proper infrastructure there as far as that goes when it comes to cybersecurity. What needs to be done? What do you see as challenges there? Because regulations, laws are on the forefront. And how do you maintain that? And it sounds like Crow would be a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue, I think, across industry, especially the energy sector when it comes to cyber threats, is the safeguarding of data and customer data and also consumer data. I mean, you know, it's amazing the the granularity of data now that the energy sector has at its disposal, you know, even knowing how often you fill up your car with gas and knowing what gas stations you like to visit based on your credit card transactions and And so there's just a lot of hypersensitive financial data and personal data that the energy sector has to track. But also on the upstream side, you know, just out in the oil patch, you know, the data that's being generated from each and every well, you know, there's some industry reports out there that would indicate that the upstream oil and gas is generating on the order of a terabyte of data each day from each well. And they have hundreds and hundreds of wells operating, if not thousands. And so that amount of data is just very cumbersome to manage. And if any of that data is breached or stolen by a competitor or a foreign bad actor, it can be used against industry and it can be used against our national security interests as well. So and, you know, and there's a lot of new international oil plays that uh, U.S. companies are starting to get engaged with, like in Guyana and other places in the world. And in some of these locations where U.S. companies are operating don't necessarily have great regulations on cybersecurity and maintaining confidentiality of sensitive corporate information. So I think every corporation needs to take it incredibly seriously and make sure they have the safeguards in place. Uh, this is something that Kroll can actually help with, by the way. Well, we will, for our corporate clients who want us to go in and do a cyber risk management analysis, we can determine how vulnerable their corporate data might be from potential hackers or foreign governments who might try be trying to get access to that data and information. So, I mean, this is a critical issue across all industries, especially the energy sector, and something that needs to be taken very seriously, especially when you're operating outside of the protections of the United mm-hmm. States in foreign locations. So, you know, this is something Kroll does. So we'd be happy to help out if any of our listeners need support on their combating cyber threats. Again, that's K-R-O-L-L.com, correct? That's right. Yes. That's well, definitely the different areas you cover are, are broad and uh, it can get more specific as you talk about. And uh, when it comes to energy security, when it comes to any of these issues, cybersecurity and so forth, Kroll is there as well as the expertise of Jose Becerro. Jose, it's always great to visit with you. We never get everything covered, but we cover quite a few subjects, which I really am encouraged by. Someone that's on top of the what's going on in the energy sector, both nationally, regionally, and internationally, is Jose Becerro. And a great friend personally, but also a great friend to the energy industry. And we appreciate your leadership, continue the great efforts. And I know we'll get you back because we need more knowledge coming from you on the show. So we'll definitely have you back. You've been listening to the Energy Fellows podcast. I'm your host, Mark Stansbury. The future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. 
Again, thank you. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Oh, 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 o